0: With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson.
1: Hi Mining Community, welcome again to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining Podcast. And today's guest is Adrian Bell. Adrian's got 32 years domestic and international mining experience in senior and executive roles within human resources risk management, sustainability which includes safety, environment and community, communications and external affairs. Uh, The last 13 years Adrian has been at an executive level reporting to the managing director with a mid-tier and successful ASX100 mining company Panos Limited. Which was recently taken over by a Chinese state owned enterprise. Um, Currently, Adrian is consulting full time for Aurelia Metals on HR, risk, and s- sustainability, and is the chairman of OnContractor, which is a fully integrated IT platform that uses AI recruitment and matching, as well as contractor management and payroll function. Um, before we get into this uh, podcast and have a chat to Adrian, Just want to um, go over uh, a conference that is coming up soon, which hopefully a lot of you uh, may be going to, which is the upcoming Indaba Mining Conference in Cape Town, South Africa, which is from the 3rd to the 6th of February. Uh, The event is one of the uh, world's biggest mining events where you can meet like-minded people and peers to to, uh, connect with. There will be special keynote speakers from some of the top CEOs of the biggest mining companies in the world. So it's a great environment to learn new technologies, make connections and develop your overall mining knowledge and awareness of the industry. I have a special offer for all listeners to the podcast um, because I'm a podcast uh, media partner to the event and you you can receive a 10% off your delicate pass by using the code DIGDEEP10. All these details will be accompanied in the show notes, um, accompanied obviously this uh, podcast. So let's get straight into this, and I want to welcome Adrian. How are you doing, Adrian? Uh, very well, thanks, Rob, and thanks for inviting me on your podcast. I've you, actually
2: been listening to them, a, to them a fair bit, and been really enjoying them.
1: No, that's great, and I really appreciate you uh, taking the time out and your uh, busy schedule to uh, to, to uh, conduct this. Um, obviously, you've listened to quite a few of these podcasts. So, um, what I would like to obviously for you to do and let the uh, audience know a little bit about your your background. Um, where you from probably from where, where you graduated to where you are presently um, and I've got a series of questions but I've got quite a few questions to ask you so um, yeah if you can fire away and let us know um, a little bit about yourself
2: no worries Rob um, I, I started my career um, with BHP I was a graduate with BHP in industrial relations and um, people probably find it hard to believe that there were IR specialists, uh, uh, people who haven't come from the sort of um, background that uh, that you experience in England and the UK, where there was a heavy fe- emphasis on industrial relations, and it was at, in, it was uh, really in the front page of every paper during the, the 70s and 80s. Um, unfortunately, it was in the front page of every paper. So I took an active interest in industrial relations, I I did an industrial relations degree which you could do back then and um, many people internationally would call it labour relations. Um, So I started as a graduate with BHP and uh, initially in West Australia um, getting involved in two yearly um, negotiations for agreements in the iron ore industry uh, before they transferred me to um, the coal fields when BHP-Utah coal merged. And uh, BHP acquired a number of the uh, US companies' Utah assets. Uh, after about three, three or so years of that, where they kept moving me, moving me around for every six months, I really wanted to get my teeth into, uh, you know, a, an actual operation, uh, not just be passing through. And that's when I uh, jumped and joined MIM Holdings, where I ended up at the most uh, industrially active and militant mine. In, in perhaps the country, uh, Collinsville Coal, where we used to budget for strikes, um, we used to have t- 20 days of strikes a year, and uh, you know we budget for eight days and never meet our budget. Right. And uh, you know it was uh, very industrially active. Uh, we even had pit ponies underground, uh, and we couldn't get rid of them because they were members of the union. <laughs> right. Um, okay.
1: It, which is a story in itself. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've got a question around that. Uh, after you've uh, after you've um, tell us a little bit about your background. Yes, yeah, So so
2: if you look at uh, someone like um, uh, you know, Ind- industrialisation Australia at that time, um, it was uh, it was going through a lot of changes. Uh, they had the Accord, which was a tri- under the Hawke Keating government, where they had tripartite um, uh, you know a group involving unions. Uh, employer groups and the government, where they're trying to reach consensus on improving flexibility in the workplace and ultimately improving productivity and wages, and, and that that was quite successful for a time. But there was still a heavy militancy that went on. Um, from there, I, uh, I I went into a more broad-based HR role in Mount Isa Mines, uh, and following that. Um, uh, I, I moved to a corporate-type role where I was doing a lot of new project development-type work um, and uh, organisational restructuring. We had a new uh, uh, MD, uh, Nick Stump, and he brought in a whole new HR framework um, called, uh, based on the work of Elliot Jacques that Rio Tinto had applied throughout their organisation and, and probably was the, the, the framework that they used. To change the whole dynamics of uh, employer-employee relationships in the workplace, and we may be able to come to that later. Yeah. Uh, from there, there, I was involved in new, as I said, new projects. I was involved in development of Alambrera in South America, joined um, the feasibility study uh, through to operations, uh, and uh, and Ernest Henry mine. Taking the lessons learned from the development of Alumbrera to build the Ernest Henry mine, which was ended up being um, a very smooth. Uh, development and and a, a world class operation um, because it was well organized and planned and and, and executed in terms of startup. Um, after that, I uh, I uh, was involved in a number of organizational reviews. I seemed to be the go to person to do those reviews, uh, and I did an organizational review at Alambrera in South America because it wasn't performing to expectations, and then. Uh, a bit of work in Avonmouth in, in the UK on, on uh, an organisational review of a, a, a zinc smelter over there, a zinc lead smelter or refinery. And then from there, I um, went back to Mount Isa and I started getting to more broad based roles. So HR, Indigenous Affairs, community, because Mount Isa was a large mine, had uh, uh, four mines, uh, two concentrators, two smelters. And it had a community on its doorstep with a large indigenous presence, yeah. uh, and and after that, when I left Extrata, I was fortunate fortunate enough to join Panos, which was a what we would call a penny dreadful back then. That eventually became um, an ASX one hundred company, and it was a great journey because we were able to start with a clean slate, take the lessons learnt, because a lot of us had come from the MIMS and whatnot of this world, and learn the learn from all the good things that they did but also from things that were not so good that big companies do and, and develop what ended up being a world-class operation on every performance indicator whether you're talking about sustainability, environment, community safety. In, in, in a place like Laos where they have, we built two operations without the fetters you have within an Australian regulatory framework and essentially just following our own moral compass. In terms of what we needed to do to achieve a world-class operation, and just get on with it. So that, that's a, and then uh, we got taken over by a Standard Enterprise, yeah. um, and Charles Standard Enterprise, and and I I left uh, last year and uh, and started to sm- smell the roses a bit, and um, and then uh, went back into the workplace as a chairman of a company and 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 consult full-time consulting.
1: Yeah what what made you get into industrial relations initially
2: it was front page of the paper okay you know? it, um, it, it was a degree you could do I didn't start off I was doing a broad-based um, business degree
1: okay and yeah. I thought
2: I'd go into marketing in fact at the time I, I, I had the opportunity to go to myers and Bunnings and well, now West Farm is in in, uh, in uh, marketing yeah. and I had a really good um, a very left wing mind you, industrial uh, relations professor at Curtin University called Ray Fells and we got on like a house on fire. Uh, my marks reflected it and I started taking active interest in that area. Probably back then I could have gone either way you know I could have easily just as easily got joined a union uh, based on based on uh, uh, you know what his experiences and, and also from his uh, perspective uh, but BHP came along uh, they offered the big bucks and uh, and the, and had, uh, you know, a lot of different operations domestically mainly but starting to have operations overseas and and, uh, and that's how I end up in industrial relations. Yeah. And, and, and having gone to the most militant mine in, in, in Australia, um, that really formed my view on, on what good looks like from a HR perspective because back then it was far from good.
1: Yeah. So you're obviously thrown in at the deep end and I suppose worst case possible scenarios that you and I suppose that's where you learned your trade so you were you were heavily involved in it straight straight from the start yeah i mean i, I can give you a few examples of what it was like
2: back then if you would like yeah the the so and because that really framed my thinking in terms of uh, uh, you know strategic hr and developing an hr framework so if i talk about the pit ponies underground it's quite a funny story but yeah. but it had a serious undertone So uh, at Collinsville Mine, we had pit ponies underground. We couldn't get, I know it sounds ridiculous, but we couldn't get rid of them because they were members of a union. We we wanted to replace, the horse was named after, one of them was named after one of the old mine managers, Warrior. We couldn't replace Warrior, and the other one was called, funnily enough, Mr. Ed. Uh, And we had to ridiculously prove to the Industrial Relations Commission that a bobcat was more efficient than a pit pony. Right. The pit ponies weren't pit ponies per se. They were Clydesdales. They barely did two hours a, a, a day, so they were mostly on the surface. They weren't like pit ponies, uh, you know, that you'd, people would recall in England, where they were blind and working underground. They, they actually had a good, pretty good life. Yeah. And um, but but the unions were, you know, were were holding on to the past uh, yeah. in many respects. And if you think about Collinsville coal, a lot of the people there were Welsh and Cornish. Um, Cornish uh, um, stock, and they came from a place called Mount Mulligan, where, where tragically, seventy-five people were killed in one of the worst mine disasters in Australia in 1921. Okay. So they all gravitated to Collinsville, and so there was a power struggle going on, and and, and the funny thing was with the pit pony story that when we went to do an inspection with the industrial commissioner, it was called the coal board of reference back then. Um, the mine manager didn't warn me before we went down uh, that the bobcat had broken down, probably sabotaged by the union, mind you. Yeah. Um, and and um, and it was like a scene out of the goodies when I got down there because the pit ponies were pulling props, you know, the supports yeah. for um, the roof underground, and, and the bobcat wasn't working. But he got a cardboard cutout, and there was two supervisors, like a scene out of the goodies, manoeuvring <laughs> this, this cardboard cutout, in the dimensions of a bobcat, around to to prove that the, a bobcat would be more efficient than a pit pony. So it happens we lost the case, and it took another eighteen months to get rid of those pit ponies. And when we did, it was based on a retirement scheme that gave them free feed, a block of land, free vet fees, barrier work for the rest of their lives. Yeah. But but it was reflective of what the industrial relations scene was like. Yeah. We had, you know, a, the, my counterpart, a young guy. Union delegate was called Mosto, Moscow Brunker, and he eventually became yes. mayor of Bowen. And the reason he was called Moscow Brunker is they were Stalinists, and he was trained in in Russia. Got you A yeah. lot of the lot of the national officials came out of Collinsville. So John Maitland, um, we had Arthur Scargill visit our site, join right, yeah. um, the pilot strike. the famous pilot strike in Australia, and and um, it was in many ways unions were 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 had won some of the best conditions in the world in Australia uh, and they were hard won yeah. and, and other than safety, they, they had won the fight but they were continuing the battle that had already been won. Yeah. So it's... things like demarcation, by, by way of example, yeah. um, was 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 ripe. So if I was a a, 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 a a tradesman, I couldn't go to the stores to get tools, I had to go to a Miners Federation employee. Would then run up and go and get tools. If I was a a, a truck driver, a miners federation um, employee, I couldn't even though I came from a farm. I couldn't do the basic servicing of
1: my truck. I couldn't change a light bulb. So they were heavily
2: demarcated. I
1: was, I was going to say. So what did you learn from those from those early days Um, in in obviously industrial relations in those sort of I suppose obviously people listening to this find it probably quite hard to believe. Um, and sort of how has the HR environment changed over the years in Australia?
2: It really, it really, um, you know, it really started with with Rio Tinto, and they started to change um, change the mindset, and started to started to under the work of Elliot Sharks, started to um, and using his framework, started to realize that we can no longer go from. So what what happened was um, un, unions. Um, employees felt loyalty to the union, not the company. Yeah. So in, in, in Collinsville, you go to the school. My wife was a teacher. The unions used to hand out the the, me, the seniors' medals. They used to pay for the formal. They used to tell the kids you had to decide now which side of the fence you set, sat. Got
1: you. They used to have
2: union lists for recruitment. So you didn't actually vet employees, they're employed essentially by the union. They used to control um, overtime, so uh, the, the roster for overtime. So everyone. Uh, you know felt loyal loyalty to uh, the Union not to the company. Yeah, and it was all it was a battle for control Of the workplace was going on in the mid 80s and Rio Tinto and Cliff's Road River Started to change the dynamics in the workplace So and this is framing my thinking because what Rio did, you know um, You know a lot of that those learnings I took with me to to other operations. Yeah, and and, and new projects so um, you know, they, they started to um, really, unions used to make threats and companies used to change their decisions based on those threats and industrial action. Yeah. Um, and if you look at um, BHP and, and Rio Tinto, Rio Tinto were at the forefront of change and BHP were very slow to react to the change to so the point when BHP and Rio were looking at merging their assets in the iron ore industry, Rio Tinto looked at their productivity gains and go. Oh whoa, whoa! You know, we can't join up with you until you sort out your productivity. Rio, Rio Tinto had sorted it out, and these are the sorts of things that they did to sort it out. So stop, stop changing decisions based on threats. Starting to yeah. look at individual contracts, they started to started to um, uh, uh, you know not go from union list, but employ people directly themselves through a rigorous process. Yeah, um, they got rid of income generating behaviour. So they started. So a lot of you think about overtime. People think overtime is good in the workplace when you talk to a lot of your supervisors and superintendents because they can deal with fluctuations in in workload. Uh, they can do catch up work. They can, if there's uh, breakdown maintenance, they have the ability to fix fix it then and there. It actually has the opposite effect. So overtime and income generating behaviour often people slow down the job. They they'll go on strike. For a couple of days, because they can make it up on the weekend and an overtime shift and some. Yep. So, actually, in terms of equipment availability and efficiencies, it has a negative effect. So, they started to look at things like annualized salaries. Um, they started to communicate directly with the employees. So, what used to happen back then is when I had a dispute, I couldn't talk to the employees about that dispute. I had to go through a reunion. union. Yep. So, so, developing communication strategies so you, you were talking with your employees and, and um, you were paying the wages. Surely you had a right to do that. Uh, they got rid of demarcation according flexibility, so truck drivers could service their own trucks, tradies could go and get their own tools from their stores. And yet this sort of demarcation, and, and unions had it to increase membership, to maximize employment, um, and and you can understand why they did it. So it was all about the control of the workplace. Yeah. So So they started to develop a vision these companies and their strategy you know the light on the hill in terms of zero harm and safety objectives um and they, they, they started to invest in people in terms of training and development yeah. they started to link salaries to rewards so these are all the things that frame my thinking on on hr so so to me the six things that an employee wants basic things and you can get that right you're going to be a long way there yeah. and that is that they really that one is they Do they have a job tomorrow so they want to know that those hygiene factors are taken care care of in terms of job security am I being paid fairly it's never about quantum it's always about compared to another company or compared to the person next to me Uh, does the company um, value safety am I going to go home with all my fingers and and toes and 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 whatnot you know and and what's expected me of me in the workplace and how am I going you know in terms of performance and what my future is. There, the six if you can get those six things right, you're a long way there. Yeah. And then and then you you've got to build a HR framework about around that. And the HR framework is really based on all the things that I just talked about that Rio Tinto did. And it was based on for Rio Tinto, it was based on the work of Elliot Sharks. For me, I often go into an organization and I implement the work of Elliot Sharks, and people don't even know we're implementing it because a lot of people get turned off by the
1: jargon I don't know if you know Rob the work of Elliot sharks uh, um, I've heard of him but no I don't know too much but I will I will yeah. be looking looking him up yeah and
2: uh, so so it's all about leadership communication so Elliot sharks contends you can't rely on leadership alone from a, a you know to sustain an organization and leaders can be taught how to lead that's the basic premise and then then he argues that rather than having um, focusing on on these charismatic leaders what we need to do is have good organization and that good organization means having a clear strategy including a HR strategy a, a clear structure where you have certain principles that apply for structure and, and you I know you wanted need to talk about structure yes. Maybe we'll talk about that next certain structure and um, and you're aligning all that with your your standards in terms of your policies and procedures your systems your people and technology. Yeah. So, so that that's basically um, what Elliot Jacques, in a very simple um, sense, was about. Yeah. But in from more well, sorry. Yeah. No. I was
1: I was gonna I was gonna say um obviously around uh, organizational structure um obviously you've done a lot of um, restructuring um and reviews in your time um what are the sort of common themes and how do you go about restructuring an operation and managing change. It's a good, good question, um, and as, as you can see
2: from my resume, I have done a lot of organisational um, restructures. And, you know, whenever you go into an operation, there's always the usual suspect. So I can go, and a lot of, a lot of executives can do this who, who, who know what good looks like. They'll go into an organisation, I did one recently for our Chinese owners, and the housekeeping when you arrive was appalling um you, you, really, you, you, you they break they have a breakdown maintenance philosophy there's poor yeah. equipment uh, you know availability and uni, uh, utilization now, absenteeism is is high sometimes there's sabotage going on because there's a poor workplace culture there's poor planning the logistics stream from surface to underground is is, is not efficient uh and 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 that usually translates into really poor safety statistics and, and so if you look at even the safety statistics alone and housekeeping, that will tell you a lot about an organization because that's that when those things are done well, they're a proxy for so many other things in terms of your standards and systems, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it comes down to leadership, culture, and as I said, um, strategy, uh, et cetera. So, so whenever I, whenever I, uh, you know, involved in a, a organizational restructure, you need to engage with the workforce so you need to have them involved in the restructure so if you if you're reviewing an operation it's you don't use, you may use one or two external specialist consultants but you do it in house yeah. as much as you can and you use highly respected people as part of your team you then need to go through an interview process if you want to bring people with you along with any changes that you're going to make in in future because most employees within the workplace will know what the barriers are to performance. Um, They will know what are the good things that the company does that you can leverage off and and you can build upon, but also what needs to change. And and at, at the end of the day, when you come up with your recommendations, you continually communicate with the workforce about what you're going to do, how you're going to do it. If you interview a cross section of the workforce, I'm not just talking several people, but if it's a, a workforce of several hundred, yeah. you would probably interview at least half of those employees. So that then you can hold up a mirror to those employees when you start to make changes, because these are the things that they already know need to need to happen, and they're more willing then to come along for the ride.
1: Yep, yeah, yeah. Um, you've done a lot of sort of project development both in Australia and overseas. Um, is it easier or harder starting a new project in a developing country compared to an existing uh, operation in Australia, which obviously you're probably going through at the moment?
2: Yeah, it's a good point because I'm going through it at the moment in Australia in terms of uh, you know um, we going to you know in terms of improving the operation yep. in Australia or well, the performance of the company. Um, it, it's actually a lot easier I found overseas but it depends on the, the overseas environment yeah so if you take a country like Laos which is a least developed country that had little mining before um, odds minerals or oxyana back then and, and Panos derived and both of them developed world-class operations it was easier in the sense that you haven't got all the baggage yeah you haven't got you haven't got all the regulations and laws that sometimes ends up you're doing the absolute minimum. You've got a lot of interference from externalities um, from external people, from unions, you're trying to tick a lot of boxes because it's the, the law is so complex and the regulations are con- so complex. So as I said earlier, you, you, you tend to follow, if a good company will fo- follow its own moral compass, they will know what good looks like. So So in that sense, and you're not dealing with you're dealing with a new workforce that you can train up from scratch. So, you know they're not they're not coming with a fixed view on things, a fixed view on management, a fixed view of how should things should be done, etc. Yeah. So, so you know if you look at when we arrived in Laos, it was a least developed country. There, there was subsistence farming around the operations. It was it was. Um, it was a, you know, it was a lot of, it was high on the corruption index, transparency, international corruption index in terms of bribery and corruption. It, you know, there, there was a, a, a barter economy. There was no cash in the economy. There was no one had, in our area that had worked in heavy, heavy industry, let, let alone mining. There was yeah. subsistence farming. There was high infant mortality, low education. So you, you fast forward to uh, 10 years. So we started the first operation, I joined them in 2005, five six. We built our first operation in 2000, large-scale operation in 2008. If you fast forward to 2010, we we're actually able to build an operation to the highest safety environmental operating standards. We we're able to, to take thousands of people out of out of poverty. Um, you know, we had world-leading apprenticeship programs where, you know, these young people can now, as we bring Filipinos and PNGs and Australians, who highly skilled tradesmen and, and uh, uh, technical people to Laos these people can now work anywhere in the world anywhere in the world 10 years later yeah uh, so they' skills that will they will that will go with them even when the mine closes. Yeah. we have microfinance programs for example uh, and, uh, and bi- uh, agricultural programs, small business development where women in, in the villages developing these cottage industries and businesses that supply to the mine, can can now keep their kids at school. Um, so so, our, our lost time injury frequency rate um, was at at point uh, or, or point oh, 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 uh, seven. Our tripper rate, based on a million hours, not talking about the American two hundred thousand, yeah. um, was you know much you know, yeah, was was at uh, uh, point seven. Now that that is world class our employee engagement was at 88%. So there's a lot of different things that went into that to achieve um, that 88% employee satisfaction rating. And and that was based on the Towers Watson survey that surveys, you know, 150,000 data points worldwide. They tend to only survey, only mid-caps and large companies do these surveys. They so tend to survey against the so-called best companies.
1: Yeah.
2: And we were, we outperformed those companies in 12 of the 13 criteria which is world class so yeah. so having a clean slate developing a, your vision a set of values aligning all your policies your remuneration your systems um, to those values um, you know having good organizational structure very good standards uh, you know having a vision for the company so we had a board that was fantastic board highly experienced. They had been through disasters overseas. Bougainville, for example, one of our board members. The Mark Copper Spill, the person from Plaza was on our board. A, a person from BHP who is uh, involved in you know, various industrial relations and issues and in South America. So they had a ex- highly experienced board that had worked in developing countries and knew what would destroy your licence to operate. Yep. And so they took sustainability very seriously and we leveraged our organisational culture through sustainability.
1: Yeah, and and, and it ended up being a very positive environment. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as yourself being an executive, um, you've have got a wide range of um, obviously skills and experience in HR, risk, and sustainability. Um, How did you sort of um, come about this, and how did it benefit Panos when you were working Uh, for them?
2: I'd say that to anyone who's who, who starts their career and progresses their career never say no to anything. Yeah. You know, always take on a new challenge. It, 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 you know, gives you a lot of personal job satisfaction. And so, you know, when I went to Mount Isa, I took on indigenous affairs and community as well as HR. And then when I went to Pan OST when we started to have sustainability as part of our strategic plan, our our five year um, uh, objectives or five year strategy, um, started to have develop a sustainability committee looking at the sustainability report they asked whether I my boss who is um, you know I've, well, I've been very fortunate all my all my bosses have been excellent throughout my career asked whether I wanted to look after risk and sustainability and and I just took that opportunity and and in fact having oversight of that um, you know that all those software areas of business um, allows you to have you know, a, take a really strategic and holistic approach that really enables, you know, the company to bring all those in, in, individual functions that would normally be siloed reporting to one executive. So it allowed you to bring all those individual functions together to join the dots and develop a common strategy that really drove the organisational culture.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, so, so that's how it came about. And, and I'd say to anyone out there, Someone gives you a once you do have another add another function. I know people that go don't want a function added to them because they just see it as a burden and more work. To me, I had the opposite view. I just just loved it. But
1: you, and, you and loved. Ex, yeah, I suppose you add extra skills skills to your to your tool bag. So and you never know when those skills that you can actually use those particular skills and certainly those skills that you learn you can use them in different situations as well. So yeah, I encourage certainly people to. Always uh, take on new challenges and, and learn. Keep continuing learning as well. Um, even there is a downside to it.
2: So when I, Rob, when I left uh, Panos, how do you market someone with diverse skills? And because yeah. most companies have a very siloed yeah. um, role, and and it was difficult. Because what am I? What what am I? I mean, you know, to be blunt, what am I selling here? Am I selling HR? Am I selling risk? Am I sustain, selling sustainability? Because a lot of the companies I went, I was, I was looking at in terms of um, working for, they, I think they found it hard to get their mind around uh, someone who has all these skills. They probably yeah. think that he has all the
1: skills but no depth, yeah. Um, which is, which is, you know, couldn't be further from the, the truth. Well, I think you probably need someone that's got a, I suppose, a different mindset to not just working in silos. So they need to look at the bigger picture and look at the value that you can add to an organization in a variety of different areas and some of those areas they may overlook which obviously you can bring those uh, additional ex- skills and experience to an organization so yeah certainly it, it needs to be someone that's got a, the, the the bigger picture um which i take it obviously where you are now they probably have got that bigger picture
2: yeah yeah exactly the, the person I'm, I'm i'm doing work for at the
1: moment See,
2: uh, gets it sees the link yeah. between all those aspects of the business and and, and the benefits because that, that, you get a lot of companies that, that see and we may come to that see sustainability as a cost yeah uh, not necessarily adding value and and also hey is, uh, you know in terms of training and development and and various HR programs and leadership development as a cost not necessarily adding value yeah um and and so when a, when someone gets it.
1: It is it, very powerful in terms of
2: uh, in terms of what you can achieve as an organisation.
1: Yeah, i um, talking about sustainability. Um, I read the Panos sustainability report um, from when you were from obviously when you were there. Um, there seems to be a be a heavy emphasis on gender, um, and I can imagine having been to Asia, uh, that country like Laos is male dominated, and I suppose mining is male dominated. Um, so, how did you sort of become so successful in achieving a positive uh, gender outcome? And I know uh, we've spoken in the past, um, and you've done exceptionally well around this. So, yeah, just wonder if you can tell the audience how you went about that. Um, yeah, it, it is. It is a
2: passion now for a lot of um, executives um, because executives can see the benefits. In terms of having a diverse workforce and, and what it brings to the table, so I actually went to an Oxfam uh, conference called "Putting Gender on Gender on the Agenda." Yeah, uh, and and uh, you know a lot of companies had stagnated with respect to um, expect to gender within the mining industry, including including Panos. And you know I, I remember um, the board when they, they brought in the ASX principles and recommendations. That included um, coming up with measurable objectives uh, based on gender. The board set up a a, a, a a gender or diversity committee, mainly focused on gender. As a company, we'd focused a lot on diversity of ethnic groups because we we're in a, a very a militant security zone when we arrived, and it was important that we we made sure that we recruited people from each of the proportionally from each of the ethnic groups. But we were really here focusing on gender, and and um, the board set up a diversity committee made up of all, all women, essentially, Yeah. and there was one, one man who, who, who ran the committee, great great person, mind you, very committed to gender, but I think we learned, we, we made mistakes back then, and for example, they did a survey of only women, and yeah. in, in the mining industry, when you've got 80-odd percent of your employees are men, you're talking you're talking to the converted already you're not talking to the people that can make a real difference yeah and that that is that uh, you know sadly you know your, your leadership groups are often men who can actually make a difference so not engaging with them and having them part of the process was was probably a failing to the point where they came up with measurable objectives and our site GMs didn't even know they existed so so um, a few years ago now about three years ago they are oh, two, two and a half, three years ago, they asked me to chair the diversity committee. Uh, during the transition to Chinese ownership, it sort of fell away. People left. And and the first thing that we did um, in terms of the group I got together was said, OK, we're going to go down this track. We do need to interview employees, but we need to interview, you know, males as as, as much as females as part of that process and and understand what the barriers are to, to increasing uh women in the workplace and what we found was in terms of our values based on merit everyone wanted that they they, they no one wanted quotas ironically yeah um, but but everyone you know we actually um, started to discuss what those barriers are and starting to make meaningful objectives just by having those conversations because we engaged men in the process all of a sudden this it generated this huge momentum where people were going off doing something immediately and I can give you an example of the guy who ran concentrate haulage great guy um, was a guy mind you I'm talking about gender yeah Um, and we used to run all our own concentrate haulage trucks had 450 employees uh, that used to move concentrate to the border of uh, uh, Vietnam and Thailand so over several hundred kilometers and then Limpox took over the transport from there on yeah it had 450 men in that part of that workforce. There were no, very no, very few women other than admin assistants. And and I asked the person, well, why don't we have any female truck drivers? We have them in the mine. We have shovel operators and truck drivers. We don't have them in the open road. He said, oh, we take people from, uh, you know, who already have a truck license and there's no women truck drivers in the layout. And I said, but, but we have the greatest training program in the world. So even though we take female, male truck drivers with experience and bring them into our organization, they then go for a six-week training program on simulators, for example, and and he said, "Yeah, yeah, we could look at that." And then he said, "But women won't want to work, you know, as truck drivers." And I said, "But our trucks are going convoy, you know, so there's always someone to help with tyres. They're not travelling alone at night because they're going convoys. We have our own fatigue stops and toilet stops along the haulage route. It's all geo-mapped, so we know exactly where a truck is at any one time. We control speeds." And so what he did, he he sort of we we talked this through, and before you know it, he's going out advertising, getting women to actually, you know, who have worked for us in in operator type roles, out into the into the villages along a haulage route, and we all of a sudden we got two hundred applicants from having none.
1: Right. We now now have a lot.
2: Yeah. In three years, we now have 91 women operating trucks. The same momentum happened in the process plant. In the mine we had female shovel operators and truck drivers but no what no supervisors yeah well why, how can that be and and because they usually come usually often shovel belt drivers and multi-skilled operators become your and they said i oh, become your supervisors they said oh and our men won't want to work for for uh, for women yeah but it, 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 it you've got to call it it's BS at the end of yeah, the day yeah. and you've got it it's just an assumption and once you break that down it, it falls away. And, and how, so, how how was know, that
1: transition? And then, then when you did put females into supervisory roles, how how was that transition? And how did the males feel about that? Probably because they're not they wouldn't be would have they probably wouldn't have been used to having a female as some of them telling them what to do, a female telling them what to do. How how was that we transition?
2: Do, yeah. Well, they started off as team leaders, so yeah. almost
1: like the old leading
2: end. We also put a lot of effort into, um, at that time, into mentoring and succession. And so we identified who, who the potential, high potentials were. And then we had a whole training program in terms of a 20 module, you know, what leaders do in terms of, uh, you know, what's expected of them about performance management, about engagement, about communication. And and, and then we had a high level um, training program called leading the, the, the Panos way which was a whole leadership capability model in terms of what people do at different levels. So taking people from the socialized mind where they just want to be part of a group and be mates with everyone to, to, and, and taking them through that transition uh, to becoming independent thinkers and, and starting to set the own, their own agenda and and uh, starting to plan and think ahead. And so giving them skills about what leaders do Uh, and uh, in terms of dealing with their employees, once you give them all those skills and give them confidence in terms of a transitioning role, um, you know, they usually, you know, there may be a bit of heartache to begin with and people trying it on, but providing you provide the necessary support, they will be successful. And they have done, they have been very successful. Um, It's funny in panel, a lot of our, we had managers and superintendents, uh, female managers our female uh, process manager Um, You know uh, at the high level but not in those supervisor superintendent level because a lot of those females came from overseas or we developed them in the in the softer areas of of commercial and external affairs it was really in the hard-edged area of process and 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 operating and uh, Mining where and maintenance where we had the biggest challenges. Yeah, and what you often find is often about the feed So when we looked at the stats you know, if we had twenty percent of women applying and eighty percent of men, we actually had proportional representation in the workplace in terms of who were recruited. there was no bias there. But what you want to do is lift the twenty percent of applicants to fifty yeah. percent you know, women. And the apprenticeship program was a classic. We started to go into the tech colleges and talking to the apprentices because they they had there was an unconscious bias either from us or from them that they couldn't be apprentices. Twenty percent of our apprentices were women women. Uh, and that was through going out into those tech colleges, encouraging them to apply. So it's often about the feed yeah. as well, not just about internal development, but the feed coming in.
1: And I've got another question. Um, there seems to be a heavy emphasis on sustainability at Panos. Did this have a positive impact on the organisational culture?
2: Uh, yeah, Rob, that's that's a really good question. And, and it's an area I'm quite passionate about. Um, in terms of um, culture, it is often a pretty nebulous thing that there's no, you can't touch it, you can't feel it, um, but it's there. And you, and when you enter a workplace, um, you start to get a feel for your culture um, just through observation. And often culture is, is really driven by the board and the executive leadership group. And they usually write up the company values. Um, as part of developing an organisation's culture, but values between companies are much of a muchness. Uh, we you look at BHP's values, Rio's values, when I values, um, and there will be the usual thing: the zero harm, safety, integrity, respect, transparency in reporting, etc. But th- the secret is able to being able to take those words off what's hanging on the front foyer and making them live and live and breathe and i think there's no better way of making your values live and breathe than through sustainability and if you look at um, respect for your employees doing everything um, in regards to trying to achieve your zero harm objectives with this absolute Integrity of your mission in terms of achieving it—that shows a lot in terms of your your care for your employees. So, if you put safety, you're always ahead of production. Then uh, that's a sign of respect. You care about the employees. In respect to training and development, diversity um, programs, mentoring programs for women, well, for women in the workplace, um, as, as well as you know, recognizing performance, good performance. But it's all showing respect for your employees. If you look at respect for the community in terms of your community development programs such as you know health safety, or self, not safety health, education, um, small business development, you know, village savings and credit funds, um, infrastructure development, um, you know um, focus on improving yields of crops and those sorts of things, that's really showing respect for the community. There's no better way of showing respect for the environment than having um, integrity around your the way you um, extract the minerals. If it's whether it's the you know applying the international cyanide management codes, to the extraction of gold, or world class uh, tanks and uh, dams um, in relation to the management of A R D, in relation to management of your carbon footprint, reducing um, your carbon footprint. And I know in Panos we we had. Um, one recognition for our diesel backloading so moving concentrate to a port and then putting a, a, a bladder on top to um, uh, to then have fuel being returned to the mine halved your almost halved your fuel costs so um, looking at recycling of water and those sorts of things not only do they make good business sense but it is showing respect for your concern about climate change and the environment more more broadly uh, and in, in respect to integrity um, you know, no better way of showing respect in, in terms of integrity than through transparent reporting. So having, you know, a sustainability report where you clearly spell out what your goals are going to be, uh, no different in the company spelling out its goals in terms of its future, in terms of production, its resource growth, showing that in respect to sustainability uh, and then reporting on those, those objectives and then reviewing those objectives at the end of the year in terms of whether you've achieved it is 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 showing absolute respect in terms of integrity. Same with being being signatories to the voluntary principles principles of security and human rights. Um, you know your position on bribery and corruption and facilitation payments is all showing integrity, as well as your, your governance documents. So to me, using you can use sustainability as a as a reflection of your values, and more importantly, in terms of developing your organisational culture, and it's a great attraction and retention policy. So employees often, you know, they put once they're employed they put the money to one side. What what's more important to them is then is then things around safety, things about how we treat our community, how we treat our employees. They appeal to if you think about Maslow's higher hierarchy of needs, once you sustain the basics, it's all about self-actualization. That really creates that that commitment with an organization it starts to develop the organisational culture where people, you know, will start to show discretionary effort in the workplace because they believe in the company and the company's values. So, so yeah, in in Panost, as I said, we had an 88% employee satisfaction rating. We wouldn't have achieved that unless we had focused on, on sustainability. and and everything that incorporates.
1: Yeah. Um, How did you take obviously an Australian company and build a mine to the the highest safety, environmental and operating standards um, in one of the poorest countries in the world um, with poor regulation and government capacity? Um, If you can sort of just give an overview of obviously when you arrived in in Laos um, and what you achieved over, over a sort of 10 year period.
2: I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Um, it, it's interesting with the relation to safety and maybe I'll talk about safety. Yeah. Um, and, and it probably goes to the heart of, of the work of Elliot Jacques because, you know, I, I've been to two mines in the last three years. One was um, a, a mine owned by had our Chinese owners that they asked us to review and the other is an operation I've worked at um, uh, which was built when we are an ASX listed company and the mine I went to in, in in Central Queensland had the worst safety record I'd ever seen. Yeah, it had a trigger rate of seventy. It was more than seventy fold more than our operations in Laos. Yeah, and and if you look at um, as to the reasons why, um, it goes back to the sorts of the things I spoke about earlier in terms of the usual suspects, but you know you go to a mine in central queensland and they're still having a lot of fatalities yeah despite the australian mining industry is the most regulated in the world the the um the coal mining industry is probably the race regulated out of the mining industry in the world and the under coal mining industry is the most regulated within the coal mining industry if you know what i mean yeah Yet, and they have all these people have senior side executives they have um they have uh uh, m- uh, registered mine managers. They have electrical, um, uh, you know, statutory roles. Yeah. They have union deputies, check inspectors. They have union uh, officials within the region checking. They have mine inspectors that come to the and mine. There's, still, there's and, still
1: things slipping, even with uh, well. There's still things slipping
2: because it's because you're often so tired. I'm not saying this. This was culture and leadership and a whole yeah. load of things were 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 issues there and standards. But, but, a lot of, but a lot of it was, so Elliot Jacques has a, a view that what you need is, is good organisation. You need, every role needs to add value. You need the minimum levels to get work done um, and you need meaningful difference between one role and the next. And, and so that way it means everyone knows who's responsible for what. If you went to that coal mine and asked who their boss was, they, they, were, they were pointing at different people. Right, when things okay. went wrong, yeah. pointing at different people. That is a key problem within the mining industry in Australia, in particular the coal mining industry. It, in many ways, you know, it, it is so regulated and they have so many different people involved in the process that people are looking over the shoulder, doing the absolute minimum, ticking the box, or even working out how can they, they work around the, 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 all these uh, people that are interfering in, in my asset. But if you in Laos, if you start with a clean slate, and as I said, you follow your own moral compass, yeah, and you say I want to achieve zero harm, you will do everything in your if you if you're a good company in your power to achieve zero harm, safety objectives. So in Laos, our triple rate wasn't 70; it was it was point. Um, as I said earlier, it was uh, 0.6. I think the last time a new frequency rate was 0. 0.07. Yeah. And so that was, that was one injury out of 3,500 employees a year, one injury, and, and hopefully not a serious injury. And so if you then say to the company, we want zero harm, and then you start saying, well, in your risk, looking at a risk register, how are we going to achieve it in terms of, um, you know, um, zero harm? And then you start to do things in, in terms of that, um, that risk register, in terms of minimizing the threats to your business and maximizing the opportunities. And so in Laos, we, we actually um, started to implement things like um, uh, you know, a a senior incident task force. We got our first up, we got our cardinal rules, right? We started to tackle the hotspots, which was contractors. When I say cardinal rules, um, understanding what are the things that, harm people in the workplace yeah. and focusing on that. So things like drug and alcohol, getting the basics right around drug and alcohol, having a permit to, to operate a machinery, uh, uh, permits to work if you're working in a confined space, good isolation procedures, managing working at heights, et cetera, et cetera. So, so once you get those basics right, you then can focus on the the hot. Sp- and we did a lot of training and development around that. A lot of work around behavioural safety in terms of, hazard identification the usual take fives getting management involved in job safety observations in the workplace and starting to focus on contractor management vehicle movements geotech issues in a pit in a high rainfall environment that was a big issue so so you you, you, it's all about your integrity of mission of trying to achieve that zero harm objectives and then you can take it to that next level and go and start introducing deep and meaningful leadership on safety. So we started to introduce deep dives where, you know, every executive, whether you're the CFO, GM business development, me in my role would do at least one, in my case, two um, deep dives a year where you would get a cross section of the workforce, look at a high risk activity within the workplace, and um, and then get a cross section, as I said, that cross section of people to scope out the work, to look at these standards that you have you have and then to test that standards in the workplace if you're looking at a a heavy lift you're going to observe that lift you bring the workforce in not in a threatening way to question about that lift and then and that way you can understand what improvements where the gaps are what improvements uh, need to be made. we had a senior incident task force where the senior management were all over any any event that happened and try and learn not just in terms of that particular event but how it impacts the rest of the the operations because we had uh, uh, heavy exploration programs in in PNG. We had a project in South America, uh, you know, we had the free-to-river project from PNG, so we had up to 300 employees working there. We had uh, assets in Myanmar and we had uh, two large mines in, in, in Laos. So taking those lessons and sharing those lessons across the group, but also following trends and hotspots and working out, you know, from those, the areas of that we were we were having increased activity, and then get being all over that and tackling that. That yeah. is real vision, uh, visionary, uh, and visible leadership
1: within yeah. the workplace. Well, that so seems. A, I was going to say that seems a really good develop, uh, really good um, development, and it, what that you implemented a good plan, and obviously then put it across a different uh, a different assets that you had, um, and obviously it was successful and it worked. So, um, yeah, it, it it was a great plan and perhaps people could maybe follow and model, model that um, because obviously you achieve outstanding results. Um, I see some of your roles, um, you've been responsible for risk management um, and a lot of companies see risk management as a sort of tick box exercise. Um, how have you and companies have uh, sort of worked and made risk management work in a sort of more practical way.
2: Uh, yeah, I think. Well, firstly, um, very early on, um, we developed a, a risk framework, and and you know really understood the company's strategy, what we wanted to achieve. Um, looking at the context because uh, different environments have different contexts. So operating in Australia is completely different—not completely different—is is is somewhat different to operating in a country like Laos, where you have bribery and corruption, uh, uh, and you have uh, mountainous, high rainfall environment. We generated a lot of uh, acid, so it's all about A R D management and tailings management was a big issue. Um, so we we we, we understood that we needed to have an ERM framework, we needed to understand what the threats were for the business in terms of achieving its strategy, but also the threats from an operational perspective, so they were fully integrated in terms of strategic and operational risks. And we would develop, it started off simply, so a simple SWOT analysis, you know, in terms of, well, you know, this is these are the threats that we, we have facing the company, and, and these are the opportunities. So trying to... So we developed an ERN system, Enterprise Risk Management system, and um, and we we uh, we we made sure that it was it, we had individual executives and managers responsible for that particular risk, and then we had a common uh, likelihood of consequence table throughout the business, and and we had risk registers throughout the business, but we kept them very simple, and. We we didn't have a complex software to run them. Um, they were simply run. They would well. We we monitored it. So every month um, we had initially we had monitoring of of the review of those risks because with risks the the, the context changes. You have change management etc. So you need to regularly review those risks. And once upon a time they every quarter. Then then became every half year. It's hard to get people to you know, continually review those risks and change management, management becomes a challenge. But you need to do that to keep um, on top of the, the changing context. Um, so, you know, risk, risk management was the, really the foundation of everything we did. So if we had a, a, one of our strategies not to, you know, talked about zero harm, but was attracting and retaining, um, uh, you know, a, a world-class workforce. We used the risk register to identify well what are the threats of achieving that, and then what were the opportunities in terms of using what we did to attract and retain people. Interestingly enough, over time, if you're doing risk management well, those threats will become your opportunities. So, so when we were entering into new countries, by way of example, when we bought the Frida River project in PNG, yeah, immediately concern was who's pan off, they pollute the environment in Cambodia. Fact is, we never had, I shouldn't say we because I ne- don't work for them anymore, yeah. but, but uh, we, we never had um, um, projects in Cambodia. They, they, once we took, you know, senior government ministers, head of mines, head of environment, uh, you know, um, even Mark Samare, um, you know, so Mark Samare came to our sites. When we started to take people to our assets, and they realise that those threats have become opportunities because, yeah. you know, if you look at, we were signatories to every international standard. So we even we, we pay, never paid a bribe in, in, in Laos. And often people say, how, how could that be? You know, it's a corrupt country. You couldn't have operated in Laos without paying a bribe. And we said, well, you actually can make, uh, create a reality different from the perception. Because if you don't pay a bribe from the very beginning and you just, you know, manage it over time, the, you're quickly sending a message to yeah. the ex- and and the same, you know, if you look at our A R D management in the pit or our tailings management in terms of how we managed our tailings dam, if you look at we were signatories to the International Sider Management Code. So when we built the Banu Side project, it was built to the highest standards, and we we had primary, secondary, and tertiary containment. We used to get uh, compliance at, before it went down the, the tailings line into the dam, uh, you know, so because we had. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, extra detox tank, tanks. Um So when you can actually, and if we our community programs are world class. You know, I say there are seven pillars of community to do with, you know, infrastructure, um, uh, small business development, in terms of microfinancing, um, you know, in terms of agricultural programs, health, education, uh, and and employment. Um, they were they were world class. So you get to the stage of turning those threats into opportunities and they give you opportunities in terms of, in terms of cheaper insurance rates. For example, we, we reduced our insurance rates by half because they saw what we did was extremely, they had an appetite for our risk, the underwriters, yeah. because we were a low risk compared to the rest of the mining industry. So, so what becomes a threat ultimately if you're managing that risk, well actually becomes an opportunity and allows you to enter new countries. BHP for example, uh, or, or large companies are starting to worry about the chain of custody if they sell an asset. So lots of these big companies were selling assets for a buck, yeah. but then it would come back to haunt them because the person taking the com- company taking over didn't share, you know, their, their uh, vision and and values in respect to sustainability. And there's been laws introduced in Australia to prevent that from happening in future in terms of in terms of who's ultimately responsible. So so one of the things that these large companies are doing now is saying if you're wanting to do mergers and you want to do an acquisition, you want to buy one of our assets, one of of the trigger points or one of the toll gates is actually not, not how much money you're going to pay that comes later, but the first toll gate is what's your reputation from the sustainability perspective. So it provides a great avenue from, uh, you know, from an acquisition perspective, from entry into new countries, from a financing perspective, from insurance perspective. And, and that's turn, really the secret is turning that threat into an opportunity. You do that through good risk management.
1: Yeah. A um, couple last questions. Um, one's around mine closure. Um, and mine closure, particularly in developing countries, um, is a hot topic. Have you ever seen it done well? Um, what is your approach to mine closure so that a mining company leaves? A lasting legacy
2: yeah um, I've done a fair bit of work on mine closure because in Laos our mines were closing in in um, in a few years time so we started the work five years earlier a lot of our learnings came from case studies uh, provided to us uh, from an external consultant in respect to Rio Tinto and so there's not many good examples to be frank and and but it's a learning for a lot of companies so if you look at Rio Tinto and the Kalian operation, that's probably one of the best examples, you know, because they Rio Tinto didn't just walk away. They had a, a I don't know what they called it at that time. It's a while back when I when I, when someone presented the case study who was involved in that project, but they had a they had a trust or a board that that oversaw mine closure and 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 well beyond the time the mine closed. So so a lot of the the programs that were introduced. You know, so to leave a legacy, 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 we overseen, but but mining companies. So we started mine closure five years out in terms of looking at once again using our risk, coming up with a mine closure vision that was leaving a legacy um, in, in positive legacy in Laos, and then looking at all the things that we could do to leave a positive legacy in terms of, you know, A R D management tailings. You know, we're potentially going to be there in, per, in, in perpetuity. Uh, things like how we, what we did with the existing um, uh, facilities, uh, how they were going to either be demolished and cleaned up or transferred um, to community or to government. Looking at innovative things like, you know, e- expanding the markets, expanding the products that were being produced in those communities and starting to help them with, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, transport logistics and, and business, um, uh, developing business capacity to be able to sell their products, not just to the mine, but to the broader Lao community and, and other Lao businesses. Yeah. You know, I remember looking at uh, recruitment and we have our own centralised recruitment team. Well, if they're going to be disbanded, why don't we use them to gather resumes internally because they recruit all over the world to make contact with, you know, um, companies all the way over the world and say, we've got these great people. Um, are you interested in them leading up to mine closure? Yeah, so actually you need to do that You need to plan
1: pre plan well ahead. in advance. Yeah, yeah,
2: so so But interesting enough free-to-river project, which is a seven billion several billion dollar project What we started to look at and change the narrative is a lot of companies when they're building a project in a developing country will have um, a very enclave approach to development so initially when we looked at free-to-river project we're going to ship concentrate down the seepic River uh, we're going to have power just for us we're going to have an airport just for us a port just for us what we started to do was say actually there's an opportunity to to have a nation building project here which will provide uh, um, I guess facilities and beyond uh, what the mine needs and and would also leave a lasting legacy so we start instead of having a a, 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 a 200 megawatt power station, looking at a 400 megawatt power station and using having an integrated tailings and, and waste facility that would also you, be used for for uh, generating power. Instead of taking the concentrate down the Sepik River that benefited very few people, we built a road from um, uh, uh, Vanimo to the mine then other industries could be developed along that whole road. If you look at the um, the the strip we said okay we won't have it at will have it in a regional regional centre. You look at the port we'll make it a multi use port, for export. We're we'll in a road, you know it's going to open up open up export markets north into Indonesia etc. So so moving from an enclave approach to a shared use infrastructure approach is one way of actually leaving a real lasting legacy and that's something we've changed the narrative in PNG towards that. So. There are downsides to it, and I know Vale have, you know, they have in Brazil train lines that go from their mines to, to the coast in Amazonia and, and beyond to the coast. And and the problem with that is you get these spur lines where they could actually have a negative impact in terms of, you know, destruction of rainforests, etc. Et so uh, it's important you manage that um, appropriately so it has more of a positive side than a negative side. Yeah. But mining companies are, can be great agents for change. And and people are highly critical of mining companies if done well uh, They can lift thousands and thousands of people out of poverty and they can they can be nation-changing And that's that's what how Panos used to view um, You know community development how they viewed mine closure how you know we had a very supportive board We had a clear vision and strategy uh, in, in order to
1: achieve that. Yeah, um, and lastly um, What's the future? for yourself, um, obviously you're, you're currently working at the moment, but what is there anything else you're looking to achieve within the industry? Obviously you've got quite a wide range of skills um, and experiences. Is there anything else you still want to achieve in the industry? I think, you know, the sorts of skills I,
2: I have, I think can, I, I can apply to uh, companies that, that share the, the, the vision um, that Panos shared yeah. and and want to grow their business both domestically and internationally and i i like being part of part of that i like i love organizational change i, I love um, getting involved in particularly in safety and sustainability and then my probably hr is my bread and butter yeah and that's really important from an employee engagement perspective uh, and i but i know you can leverage that through sustainability so my passion is really you know sustainability health um, and, and and safety, environment and community. So I'd like to continue with that. I'll probably go on, you know, if boards want me in yeah. the future, I've still got a lot to give in terms of as an, as an executive, um, but maybe going on boards where where a board gets that, that yeah. these things are important in terms of your licence to operate. There is the changing nature and demands in respect to HR and sustainability, the investment community, the valuing companies based on, on how they perform from a sustainability perspective, how they employ from a safety perspective and employee engagements perspective. So joining a board where, you know, the problem is often boards want legal skills, they want production skills, they they uh, they, they want um, finance skills. Uh, they don't often um, want the sort of skills that I have. Yeah, although certainly. that is changing. Yeah, so, But I think I can offer a lot in terms of, you know, mid cap companies in particular, uh, from a board perspective, but also like being part of a journey in terms of change.
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, really appreciate your time, um, Adrian. And you've certainly given me um, a lot to think about and give me a, a, a lot of, co- you've provided a lot of content obviously around um, HR, risk management, sustainability, um, et cetera. So um, I think the audience will definitely um, take a, would have taken a lot away from uh, from this. Um if our audience wants to sort of get in contact with you, may have some questions, how can they uh, go about doing that?
2: Either via LinkedIn, although my profile, I'm a bit slow to update <laughs> it, but via LinkedIn and uh, all directly my Gmail, which is uh, Bill
1: at gmail.com. Yeah, no worries. Um, well, really appreciate your time uh, um, in doing this podcast, Adrian. And yeah, I've certainly, uh, I've certainly. Uh, learnt a lot from this so um, yeah really appreciate your time um, just lastly closing closing up um, so hopefully a lot of you listeners will be coming to the Indaba Mining Conference um, in Cape Town which is from the 3rd to the 6th of February. Um, like I mentioned earlier, all Dig Deep listeners can receive 10% off tickets uh, when you register with a discount code DIGDEEP10 um, and full details will be um, in the show notes accompanying this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did and hope you got uh, a lot of content from it and a lot of um, knowledge. Um, so until next time,
0: happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org. Or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.